Greetings and thank you for listening to My Awakening Podcast, created to help us all become better citizens in a more diverse America. My name is Joe and I will be your host. In 2012, when I heard about the killing of Trayvon Martin, something shifted that no longer allowed me to disregard the many social justice issues that I heard on the news. Some new relationships and extensive reading and research since then has led to creating this podcast, allowing me to share this ongoing journey with you. Since announcing this podcast, there has been several recent tragic events further highlighting the deep racial divide that still exists in our country. Until we all join the outrage for this ongoing racial injustice, real change is not likely to happen. But if we work together, we can make the major systemic changes that are needed. My wife recently reminded me that I can't fix these long-standing problems, but I can help by shedding light on them. Bridging this racial divide will require all of us moving past our discomfort with talking about race and truly listening to understand what is happening around us. My initial guests will be sharing their journey as black Americans in a majority white society. Will you join with me in listening to their stories and concerns for America's future? Thank you for being with us today as we explore how to move America closer towards justice for all. Welcome to My Awakening Podcast, Episode 2. I am excited to introduce my friend Michaela, and she has agreed to be our guest and share with us about her life and current feelings and thoughts about the unprecedented protesting in America right now. I especially want to recognize that you have agreed to be a guest on this podcast during a time that is particularly painful for you, and I hope we will learn more about that through our conversation. Welcome, Michaela. Hi. Thank you for being willing to be our guest on this podcast today. Would you share with us about yourself and just tell us a little about who Michaela is, whatever you think people might need to know a little bit about who you are? Okay. Well, um, my name is Michaela. I was born in Los Angeles, California. I spent... About, I moved to Washington in 1994, so I was 12, I was 12, um, when I moved to Washington in Seattle, and I was in Seattle through middle and high school, and a little bit of post high school, um, I moved to Tacoma, Washington in 2007, and I've more or less been in Tacoma ever since. I have two older sisters and two younger brothers. Oh, wow. And so I was the baby girl for nine years. And then I had a baby brother. And so that was a lot to deal with. (laughs) Not being the baby anymore, you know. Um, But I was still the baby girl. And and then on the flip side of that, because my mom and my dad were not together very long after I was born 
And so I was my father's only child. So when I would visit with my dad, I got only child stuff. Like I didn't have to share my (laughs) toys and my affection and attention and stuff. And it was really fun. And then I go back to my mom's house and I was like one of five and it was just a different atmosphere. (laughs) So, yeah. Do they live in the area too? They do, which is what makes it kind of, you know. (laughs) So we have like that relationship that you would have with your sibling or whatever if they lived in like another state that you call and check on each other every once in a while and send birthday and holiday texts and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But not like spending time together, you know, like we don't really do that. And um, I think that just has more to do with how we were raised just in that respect. Um. There are a lot of people in my life that I call family. Um, And then there are people that I'm related to. Okay, gotcha. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I I get that. I get that. So, yeah. So tell us about your, uh, your own little family that you have, the two boys. My own little family is me and my two boys. Um, Jabari just turned 15. Oh my gosh. Welcome to teenage years. And then um, my other son, Malachi, is eight and a half, going on 30. And (laughs) he's very, he's a very intelligent, um, observant, wise child. Yes. And so my kids are great. They love to play football and do all the boy stuff. And, um... I'm a single mom, but luckily we have a really good village of people that, you know, help um, me with my kids and with teaching them how to do boy stuff and, you know, kind of helping guide them to be honorable men, you know, Um, some of them, some of the more influential ones were at the birthday celebration that you were talking about. Um, thank you for sharing some personal things so that we have a little bit of an idea who who you are because not most of the listeners aren't going to necessarily know. Right. As if you can remember, uh, when was the first time in your, in your life that you remember um, being treated differently as a black person? I remember, I think... Going to the grocery store in California, um, somewhere in and around L.A. County because we moved around a lot. Um, but for the most part, I was raised in, when, when we lived in California, I was raised in primarily black communities, okay. you know. And so um, we pretty much stuck together and, and stuff like that. But I do remember being a child and like maybe going to the grocery store with other kids from my neighborhood, which was really like a giant apartment complex, right? With maybe 200 units or something like that, Um, 100, 200 units. And kids getting together and going to the grocery store and um, the store owner being a non-black person would say only three of you are allowed inside at, at a time, you know? Um, and so we'd have to stand outside 
and three people would go in and they would get whatever they wanted and they'd come out. Maybe all three would come out or maybe only one would come out, but there was only, only three black people could be, only three of us black kids could be allowed in the grocery store at a time. And, you know, we had money and we weren't causing a fuss or anything like that, but it was just, you know, their rules. But meanwhile, you would see, we'd see like a group of maybe white kids walk in, you know, and they didn't get stopped. They didn't have the only three kids in the store rule, Mm -hmm. you know, or, um, same thing, like maybe coming from school after school, cause we'd walk home and stopping at the grocery store or whatever. And we would have to leave our backpacks by the door, you know? And so all of that was because the store owners or the workers thought that we were going to steal, you know? And so, um, those were kind of some of the things that we would have to do. Hmm. And this was probably... You would have been uh, how old then? Like eight, nine, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, remember feeling at the time, at the time that there was something that didn't seem right about it or you just sort of accepted that was just it? I think that I probably kind of just accepted that it was it while still questioning like, well, why do they get to walk in? You know, and, but not really attributing it to racism or discrimination. So fast forward a bit, uh, same question, only can you recall the most recent time when you were treated differently as a black woman? Oh, gosh. Yesterday? There's so much. Actually, yesterday, yesterday, actually, I was going to a popular crafting store and I was picking up an order that I had placed online and, you know, coming out of COVID, um, I had been placing orders online, doing curbside pickup for the last two and a half months. Right. But now stores are open. And I just went inside to get my stuff and I was like, oh, I need a couple other things. I'll just run in and get what I need. Right. So I ran into the store. I got what I needed. I was checking out and I remembered that I had an online order I was supposed to be picking up as well. And so I told the cashier that, you know, I had an online order and she was like, okay. And she finished checking me out and then she got the person. So while I was checking out, And what made me remember I had an online order was I heard another woman come in, a white woman came in and she was like, I'm here to pick up my online order. Right. And so the employee was like, oh, what's your name? The white lady gave her name and, you know, she found her package. She was like, can you sign here? She signed, she left. Right. And I was like, oh, I got an order that I need too. And so I, uh, the cashier that I was working with called the other lady who was doing the online orders and she asked me my name and I gave her my name and she goes, okay, you know, here I found it. And she brings the bag over and she's like, can I see some ID? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Because I knew that that was their policy, 
because I have been picking up online orders for like every other day almost (laughs) for the past two months, right? And so I was prepared with my ID. However, I know that you just didn't check that white lady's ID. Even, and I didn't raise, I didn't raise an issue because I know it's their policy, but it is an issue because if it's your policy, it should be your policy all the time. Right. And so I just got my stuff and I walked out cause I didn't, I didn't feel like dealing with it. And I was just like, whatever. So, um, because also she could have just wrote a check or something and maybe she showed her ID and I missed it. Like I wasn't watching their interaction that close, you know, but as far as the portion of their interaction, when the lady said, Oh, I have a package that I need to get until she got her package. She was not asked for her ID, you know? So that just happened two days ago. Yeah. It's not necessarily that I'm looking for racism. It's more so, or at least I choose to believe that it's more so that when I first started working, my first couple of jobs that I had were very customer service heavy jobs, right? And so the way that customer service used to be, at least in the 90s, you know, was that you treated every customer the same. You asked the same questions. You, it was like a script almost, you know, you, um, and this is like retail, right? So it's like you greet them, you ask them how their day's going. You make a little chit chat while you're handling business or whatever. At the end of the thing, you tell them, thank you, you know, and have a good day or something like that. Right? Like scripted. And so, I notice that now if I go to a store and I notice that the person who's checking me out didn't greet me, I notice that. And I noticed that I noticed that you greeted the white woman that was in front of me, you know, and you maybe had a really good conversation with them about their day and their dog and their kids and their whatever else you guys sat and talked about as you very slowly scanned their groceries, you know, and you sent them on their way. And then when it's my turn in line, you just start scanning my groceries. You don't say hi to me. You don't make eye contact with me. I'm going to notice that, you know. As much as we wish it to be different, that even in the church, let alone in the community, that we have a lot of work to do. And I wondered if you could speak a little bit to how you feel we can move forward from this, uh, obviously lots of folks that have a lot of work yet to do themselves in learning what they need to know and, and really understanding systemic racism and what's going on in America with so much work that's yet to be done by so many people. How is it that you think we can move forward from where we're at right now? Okay. I speak in stories. Okay. (laughs) So with that said, with that question of what does the church need to do? A, I feel like the church really needs to recognize that it has played a part 
and it's played a really big part in a lot of the racism that exists, right? From turning Jesus into a blonde-haired, blue-eyed person to worship to worship music, right? There's a lot of churches that are multicultural churches. You have black people, you have Hispanic people, you have um, Asian people, maybe Samoan people. Every worship song is in English. There's a certain tone and a cadence that happens that is a European tone and cadence. Songs of worship that are beautiful songs that can be lifted to the Lord, but have a more colorful tone are not presented, right? Most churches, multicultural churches, big churches, what they play Hillsong, Bethel, you know, these these white worshipers, you know? And not that there's anything wrong with those songs, but if you're a multicultural church, why does not even your worship reflect that? If you're a multicultural church and you never have even a song, a verse that's in Korean or in Spanish or a chance for your Samoan congregants to come and share and teach that song. You know, when we all go to heaven, it ain't gonna be English that we're only worshiping in. You know, if it's a multitude and it's just like, even in the way that church is presented, it's still very European, even in multicultural churches, right? And then, so we all know, I mean, they all always talk about the statistic that like Sunday morning is the most segregated time, you know, of the week or whatever. But if I go to a multicultural church and, but my heart feels a certain way and I want to worship a certain way, you know, like I'm black. I like a little bass, you know, (laughs) I like a little... You know what I mean? You know, you've heard a black worship song. If you haven't, like Google Hezekiel Walker or Kirk Franklin or somebody. Um, Black worship music. I don't know. But anyways, um, Todd Green, he's really good. It's just, it's a certain flow. So the other thing is A, the white Jesus, right? That's an issue. B, you know, not having diverse worship styles, right? I think that that's an issue. And see, because the diverse worship styles, it kind of goes back to that whole, for me, I don't see color thing. You know, I love this quote that you have right here. I hate when freaking people tell me I don't see color. It's so disrespectful. We can talk about that later. What was the third thing I was going to say? Um, to listen. And I know that Josh said it. I don't know if he said it on this podcast, but listen to learn and not defend 
or something along those right. lines. That was the word. Um, and it's like people want to talk about race and people get defensive, especially in the church. You know, they're like, I'm not racist. I know three black people. Like, if you know how many black people you know, you're probably a little racist. You know, I can't, <laughs> I can't just be like, oh, I'm not racist. I have three white friends. I don't know how many white friends I have. I don't know. How, you know, like, why are you counting and keeping track just to like make sure you don't go over or that like you meet the minimum or something like that's weird. Um, and so to just listen. And I think that also the church needs to understand that this is not because racism is so ingrained, especially in American culture. You cannot just say, I'm sorry. And then expect black people to be like, okay, kumbaya. Like that's not real. That's not going to happen. You know, um, I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today and they were like, you know, cause they're trying to have this whole conversation about, re- <clears throat> about racial reconciliation as well. And so they're like, should I be doing this? You know, am I doing it wrong? Black people are saying, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to have to educate white people. You know, there's all these resources out here. I don't want to have to educate white people. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to do that. And I'm like, well, part of that is because black people don't want your white tears. Period. I don't want your white tears. You know, your tears are not going, your heartfelt, you know, tearful apology is not going to do anything for systemic racism. You know, it's not going to do anything to lessen the disparities in healthcare. It's not going to help the wage gap that black people, especially black women experience, you know, to this day in the year 2020, black women make 67 cents to the dollar of a white man, you know? And so all these things like you're, you're crying and you saying, oh, I'm so sorry that racism exists. And oh, I, if only there was something I can do as you're giving a wet and watery apology but not actually standing up against the systems that are in place that you as a white person, not you, but you as a white person are, are benefiting from, you know, I don't know if you can hear the smile in my voice, but I want to tell you a story. I used to go to, um, college in downtown Seattle, right? I used to, I used to attend a uh, community college downtown Seattle and one particular, and I would catch the bus, right? And this one particular day I'm on the bus, minding my business. And this little white lady gets on the bus, right? She's probably like 60, something like that. She gets on the bus and she has like this huge shopping bag. And this is before the time that like reusable bags were like a thing, right? And so she has this huge recy- uh, reusable bag and I make cat casual conversation with her. I'm like, Hey, how's it going? You know? And she's like, I'm good. And I was like, you know, going downtown to meet friends for lunch or something like, you know, cause she was like a little old lady. And I'm like, why are you on the bus alone? <laughs> you know? 
And I'm like, are you going downtown to meet friends? And she's like, no, I'm going shopping. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Where are you going to shop at? And she goes, oh, I'm going to Nordstrom's. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, like, that's a nice shop. You know, I like Nordstrom's, whatever. And she's like, yeah. She goes, it's really cool. I just go in there and I just steal everything I want. And I said, I'm sorry, come again? And she goes, yeah, because it's in downtown Seattle. And she goes, yeah, I'm a little old white lady. They don't pay any attention to me. And they go in the, and they harass the black teens that come in the store. And so she just goes into Nordstrom's and just robs them. And I was like, I was shocked. And then I was like, you know what? Go you. Because if they weren't being racist, they would have caught you by now. <laughs> I was like, I was torn between like, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And you know what? If they weren't just watching the black kids that happened to be wandering through the store, maybe they would have caught you. And, you know, that's a thing. Well, just to allow enough time to have meaningful discussion and hear your heart about where we're at today, I would like to shift gears a bit further to... um, Let's step into where what's going on today with America right now with this um, two and a half months of uh, sheltering in place mm-hmm. immediately followed by um, levels of um, protest that we haven't seen in many in a lifetime for many people mm-hmm. um, and uh uh, the fact that this was all that the, the protesting was really sparked by one man's horrible death that was captured on video that we all saw and were horrified by to see literally watching him die on the video. Mm-hmm. That video mm-hmm. has captured the concerns of a nation. Now the question is, what are we going to do with it? And where do we go? How do we move forward from here? I think that what's really important is white people need to listen, like just listen to the pain, not the pain to the pain. Yes. And to the experiences of black people to what we have been saying is wrong with this country for years. You know, people have been crying out for years about, um, pay wage gaps. You know, people have been crying out for years about the disparities in healthcare, especially for black women. People have been crying out for years about how, you know, they can't make a living wage and to support their families, you know, and this, these are issues that affect everyone, not just black people. At the end of the day, they affect everyone because we're all connected and there's a ripple effect, right? But I also think that um, George Floyd's death also came on, like it came on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery, of Breonna Taylor, of, you know, um, all the other black people it turns out we had a local one here as well with right. Mr. Ellis. Emmanuel Ellis or Emmanuel Ellis. And, you know, other people 
And what's crazy is that those are just the ones that are caught on film. It's not even all of them, you know, those are just the ones that are caught on film. Those are just the ones that happen to have happened in public or possibly in the daytime or somebody just happened to be driving by like with Mr. Ellis, somebody just happened to be driving by and was like, wow, look what's happening over there in this dark corner with the police and this man, you know, maybe I should film this in case of something goes awry or, you know, for whatever reasons that people think to pull out their phones and record stuff like this. Um, but also like, this is a thing that's been happening and it's happening over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I think that just my statistics might be wrong, but just in like the last two weeks that they've been, that people have been protesting, um, police brutality and the death of George Floyd, there's been like four or five other people who have died because of police brutality, you know, just in the last week or something. And it's just like, I was just reading an article on Facebook yesterday, or maybe it was earlier today, I don't remember, but that somebody else like in Virginia, I think had died, you know? And so don't quote me on that, but somebody else had just died from police brutality, you know? And so it's like, as the black community, we don't even have time to grieve the last person before the next victim comes along. You know, like I'm, we are grieving as a community, as a society. And so with that being said, that's part of the reason why, you know, some people are like, I don't, I can't, I can't educate you. I can't talk to you about this. I can't discuss it. I'm angry. I'm, you know, um, I want to go against the system. I want to do whatever, you know, because we're being traumatized over and over and over and over again. And as the black community is crying out and they're saying, this is not fair and we want justice and we're tired of our blood running through the streets and there's a majority of white people were saying, oh, it's not that bad. It's fine. You'll be all right. You know, at what point does it start to be important enough? You know, and um, I, so I think that with the white community, it's really important that A, you educate yourselves as much as possible. Like Google is a thing, you know, and there's books and there's teachings and there's, there's people who come out and they talk about racial issues and they talk about, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's people like, make it your problem, you know? And I think that's what you're doing. Make it your problem. Like, why is it not your problem? You know, and make it your problem. It's your problem. As much as it's my problem, it's your problem. And there are things that the white community can do to combat racism, you know? And like I said, racism is, it's deep. It is deep 
in American soil. It is deep. But the more we call it out, the more we um, see it and say, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, you know, we can kind of start to pull up those roots, you know? And if, as white people, if you see or hear something racist, you see something, somebody posted something on, on Facebook that's racist or social media or something, don't send it to the, one of the three black friends that you have and say, Hey, look what this person posted or this person said or did. You should say something about it. No, you should say something about it because you knew that it was wrong enough for, to reach out to me and tell me to do it. You know, I could share what, what it actually was that had, um, white, um, my white privilege, the idea of that broke through for me was when a gentleman said that exact thing at that meeting down at the Grand Theater yeah. five years ago. I've said that um, it wasn't that long ago that I always thought of racist issues in America were somebody else's problem. Right. And, and a lot of people I, do. I did. I, I literally, I just never thought, well, this is my problem too. It's all of our problems. I've come to realize that. There's no question about it. And thinking about it that way is what all of us need to own yeah. and be a part of. Right. You know, you. I'm guessing you may have had this question before, but I'm uh, I'm not a Facebook person much. Okay. Uh, almost not at all. But because you had agreed to be on our podcast, I have been watching your posts a bit and you've been stalking my Facebook Joe. (laughs) Yeah. I've been stalking your Facebook. No, it's been interesting. And, um, but I'm curious, uh, what is it that drives your particular, I guess the things that you choose to repost and, uh, stuff there has to be, I mean, your passion definitely comes through for these issues in your postings, but I'm just curious uh, how you decide and who the who your followers are that you're attempting to get some message across to. Um, I don't have a lot of followers. Like, I think as of late, I've been posting more like public stuff, but I don't I don't have a really big Facebook following. Following, and I, I'm okay with that. I've never that's not really my thing. Um, but I do know that I have a lot of white people on my Facebook because I have a lot of people that like I go to church with or I work with, or I just know in the community or, you know, whatever. And so, um, so I have a lot of white people on my Facebook and I, I am not begging for, apologies or acknowledgement or anything like that. But I want, I don't want to hear that you didn't know, you know? And so, yeah. So you knew because I saw you (laughs) on my Facebook, you know? And so, you know what I posted and it's really, it's really interesting 
because um, I do these little social experiments on my Facebook. And so it's really interesting to see who responds to what, you know, and I'll have, I'll post something about, you know, Black Lives Matter or why you shouldn't say I don't see color, like why that is offensive. You know, I might post something about that and, you know, people might see it, but they might not, you know, react to it or comment on it or whatever. And I'll post, you know, a couple more articles. Um, Sometimes I post videos about racism, about white privilege, about post-traumatic slave syndrome. I actually really enjoy learning about that topic. Um, It's very eye-opening. Um, you know, I'll post about different stuff and then I'll post like a picture of me and my kids, right? (laughs) And keep it real. Right. And then like all the white people who ignored all my racial posts would be like, oh, look at your kids. You're so cute. (laughs) And I'm like side eyeing them because I'm like, I know you saw all the other stuff that I posted too, but you chose to remain silent, you know? And I think that's another part of why I post what I post. Um, I had a really, really difficult time right after George Floyd was murdered. I had a really difficult time with that. I ended up having to leave and just like clear my head and stuff. We were supposed to meet that week and I was just like, I can't do it, you know? And part of the reason that I was having such a difficult time was the amount of silence that I was hearing from people who I consider friends, people who I consider, you know, um, family people who I would literally lay my life down for were silent on the issues that plague the black community. And it was hurtful. You know, it was really hurtful because I see a George Floyd, you know, and Ahmaud Arbery, a uh, Philando Castile, and Alton Sterling, a Mike Brown, and Trayvon Martin, and I see my kids, you know, who yeah. are black boys growing up in America, and to have people, white people, who look at my kids and say, "Oh, your kids are so cute," or "Wow, you know, you're you're raising your kids so good, and your kids are so." you know, well-mannered and they're this and they're that. And I just, I just love you and I love your family and, you know, I care about you and all this stuff. But people who look like my kids are dying in the streets unjustly at the hands of people who had been sworn to serve and protect them are killing them and you don't care. And it was like, wow, what, what do I do with that? You know, it was a very uncomfortable silence. The silence is 
deafening. It's heavy and it makes me question my relationships, you know? And I mean, I I could be exaggerating. I am exaggerating. When I say that I think about like the Holocaust, you know, and I think about the persecution that Jewish people were experiencing. And I think about those non-Jewish people who chose to keep Jewish people safe, you know, and hide them in their houses and bring them food and, you know, make sure that they were good and send away the German army, and you know, and those who chose to, to protect them. And I'm looking at people that I call friends and I'm like, with the way that black people are hunted right now, if this were to get to that place, are you somebody that I can trust to protect me? You know, in a race war, if a if like a legit race war was to break out, are you somebody that would stand up and say no, you know, and would protect my family? Or would you just turn a blind eye like you're doing right now? You know, and what is interesting to me in the whole situation of everything that's happening right now is that as part of your white privilege, which is this is something that you may or may not have even considered, but as part of your white privilege, you can say, I don't want to deal with this anymore and I'm going to turn off the TV. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And so I'm just not going to be on Facebook today. You know, you have that privilege to say, I don't want to deal with racism today. And so I just choose not to, you know, I choose not to interact with it. And you have that privilege. I don't have that privilege, you know? So as much as I'm sure some people are tired of me talking about racism on Facebook, I'm tired of living it. You know, I'm tired of having to deal with it every single day. Today, I'm going to cry now. Today, I was getting breakfast with Malachi, who's eight years old. And just randomly, he says to me, mom, He says, mom, I want my kids to live in a world where they feel safe. And I said, safe from who, honey? And he said, racist white people because they keep killing us. This is my eight-year-old child who is already thinking 20 and 30 years down the line when he's raising and taking care of his own kids and the racial injustices that they're gonna deal with, you know? And part of me wants to be like, oh, honey, they'll be fine. You know, it's 20 years from now, we'll figure it out. But then I turn around and I look at how far we've come and it's not very far since Martin Luther King, since civil rights, since slavery was abolished, it's, you know, 1865, Juneteenth, it's 
Juneteenth is around the corner. 1865. We haven't come very far in 150 years. Why, how can I convince my child that in 30 years we're going to have this fixed? But I still want to believe that with the movements that are happening right now and with the awakening and with people saying, you know what, this isn't right and I'm going to call it out, you know, and that's what has to happen. If we continue to turn it off just because we don't want to deal with it anymore, it's not going to change. And my son is going to be sitting here having a conversation with your grandkids talking about race and where do we go from here as black bodies and black blood continues to be shed in the streets and nobody says anything. Yeah, thank you for your being raw on that. That's the bottom line of where we're all at right here. Wow, thank you for sharing that. You're yeah, God's got this. We just uh, are in a uh, huge transformational time. Yes. That uh, I think each of us has uh, important roles to play, and we all got to step up. Right. And uh, be willing to, um, you know, be outraged along with other folks and, and not just accept this uh, sitting in our living rooms and watching it on the news right racism is your problem amen racism is your problem so fix it all right let's get on with it america we can do this uh, michaela i really thank you for your time here today and for being honest with uh with me and our audience yes and uh i know we've spent quite a bit of time but i i really appreciate that you were willing to be um, raw with uh, sharing what you did and uh, there's probably much more yet to be said mm-hmm. and uh, I need to probably watch your Facebook more <laughs> myself and uh, I, I'm shifting gears a bit to become a little bit more active on Facebook but uh, we'll see how that goes Yeah. and um, so anyway I just want to really thank you sincerely from the heart for being willing to share with me and our audience here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was great. Our sincere thanks to Michaela for being our guest today and for telling it like it is and helping us to better understand the worldview and life concerns of a young black mother in America today. There are two important first steps you can each make if you really want to become part of the solution that America is crying out for to close our racial divide. First, begin educating yourself about systemic racism and what is really going on with these long-standing racial problems. To assist you in that effort, you can go to the bottom of our website at myawakeningpodcast.com and check out our resources section. There are web-linked resources there that have most impacted my journey along the way, and it will be continually updated to include more. Secondly, begin earnestly seeking a true relationship with someone who does not look like you. As challenging as that may sound, I can testify that it will ultimately bring you a fuller understanding of others and great personal joy as well. 
If hearing Michaela today on My Awakening podcast was meaningful for your journey, we hope you will consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends. We now have an active My Awakening podcast Facebook page where you may go to share comments and thoughts about what you hear on our podcasts. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to sharing more thought-provoking content with you in next week's episode. Please keep listening, and remember that we can make the systemic changes that are needed to heal America's racial divide and achieve justice for all.